Our guest today was a very talented time trialist right from the beginning of his career, and he went on to win three world championships in a row. Great career, great guy, now working as the innovation manager at the UCI. Jens, what did you think about our talk today with Mick Rogers? Well, I have to say I'm the only one amongst us without an Olympic medal. That made me kind of feel small, but it was great to catch up with Mick. Um, I haven't seen him in a very long time after uh, you know, a career end. He now works with the UCI. I work with TV, so now it's so good to catch up with him. And man, when he said, you know, his uh, daughters are 16 years old already, time flies by, I can tell you. Well, it definitely flew by during our recording today. So please sit back and relax and listen to our great conversation. All right, everyone. Welcome, Michael Rogers, to Bobby and Jens. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Jens. Good to see you guys. Good to see you, mate. I mean, I don't really call you Michael very often, but, you know, Mick is what we all called you for so long. So, you know, I'm going to try to be as official as I can and introduce you as Michael Rogers. But, man, great to see you. How have you been? What have you been up to? Well, uh, we're fine. Fine. Uh, the years are passing on, I guess, since I stopped racing. Uh, it's eight years very soon. Uh, Bobby, you, you were, were very involved uh, in the period of, of my career when I stopped racing, and, and uh, maybe we can we can talk about that a little bit during today, but uh, time flies, uh, but we're doing well, doing fine, thank you. So actually, from where are you joining us? Where do you live these days, you and your family? Where do your kids go to school? I live in Switzerland, uh, on the uh, Italian-speaking part of, uh, of the country. Uh, so very, very close to Italy. Uh, in, in, in all truthfulness, the, the Italian border is about 300 meters down the road. Uh, so uh, we, we live a kind of, a, it's kind of Italy in this part of Switzerland. Um, we, uh, the, the canton is called Ticino. Uh, so we have a lot of Italian speakers. And, and as you hear, head about probably about, uh, what is it, 30, 40 mile, 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers from here. Uh, they start to speak German. Um, so we're right in, in the middle of all, all the, I, I guess, European culture here. My, my children go to school here. Um, I guess we just never never really moved on since uh, my, my retirement. And uh, yeah, we love it here. We love it here in Switzerland. It used to amaze me how many languages Swiss people could speak. So your kids living in Switzerland... Um, how many languages are they fluent in already? Uh, one of my girls is, I would say, three languages. Uh, I've, I have three, uh, three daughters, uh, twins that are 16, and our youngest one will be 13 uh, in, in a couple of weeks here. Um, one of my girls speaks already, obviously, uh, very fluent in Italian, uh, English. Uh, she already speaks very, very good Spanish. And uh, she's just about to start French as well. Uh, so already three and, and probably going into four pretty soon. And most importantly, do any of your kids show any desire to become a cyclist? Zero. Zero, all righty. Yeah, really. It's just not... Uh, they love their horses. 
I think that's their their passion. Uh, but uh, I, I definitely didn't pass on the, the genes of, of cycling to, to my daughters. No way. Jens has four daughters. I have two. You have three. And not a single one of them um, showed any interest in cycling. That's that's kind of funny? a bummer. Yeah. Isn't it funny? I guess maybe we were was just away from home so much uh, during the, the, the early parts of their lives. And uh, I, I guess they just connect, never connected <laughs> to the sport itself. But uh, what I guess but also that's okay maybe, also. Yeah, yeah, sometimes we maybe came home with bleeding knees and bleeding elbows. And he went, nah, I'm not sure if I fancy all these scars dad has on his entire body, more or less. Um, so maybe that's one of the reasons why they also went. Even my two boys I have, they uh, one did cycle for about five years. But about at the age of 16, 17, he went, you know, dad, waking up on a Sunday at six in the morning. Nah, that's not for me. We're <laughs> all busy sleeping in. Yeah. <laughs> so let's jump to it then. I mean, this is always a, a question that I, I'm interested in. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, we've known each other for a long time, but I never really asked you or knew, you know, how did you get into cycling before we went on air? I didn't even know that you had two brothers that were cyclists as well. Tell us, tell us your origin story of, of cycling. Well, it, it goes back to uh, the late eighties. Um, we were living um, originally from Australia um, and my father was a, a civil engineer and we were, we were kind of moving around the country uh, with, uh, with dad uh, working for various uh, local governments and, and setting up uh, just, I guess, general infrastructure uh, around the country, such as roads and uh, irrigation systems. Um, my, my father uh, is, is, being an engineer, always uh, very interested in high quality and uh, equipment. And uh, he, he bought himself a bike to ride to work on. Um, probably bought a bike that was maybe just a, a little bit uh, kind of above what you would buy to, to commute every day back and forth to work. And uh, the owner of the bicycle store, he purchased that bike, said, that's a pretty nice bike, you know. What, what have you got planned for that? And he goes, "Well, I'm I'm, I'm just uh, commuting." And uh, long story short, the the salesman uh, convinced my father to go to the local bike race um, in a place called uh, Griffith in in the state of of New South Wales. And uh, it turns out that uh, Griffith um, was a location where a lot of the immigrants, uh, particularly Italian immigrants. Uh, moved to in, in the 50s. And uh, so there was a lot of uh, tomato growing. Uh, there was a lot of uh, oranges, a lot of lemons in the area where we grew up and a very, a very strong Italian influence, southern Italian influence, and, and hence a passion for cycling. So um, my, my brothers uh, also started to race very, uh, very soon after my father. I was six or seven at the time, uh, growing up just in, in this environment, environment of cycling and, and seeing my elder brothers, you know, racing. And that's how I started. I, I just, I, I, I guess I, I started in a, a, a small uh, community of, of Italian cyclists. Uh, I was probably only the one of a very few uh, riders of, of six or seven age, uh, years of age. And always riding up in, in the categories a little bit higher than me. So riding with teenagers and, 
it was maybe where I acquired my time trial skills because not having really anyone of my own age to race with, uh, we always had these handicap races. So they'd set me off five minutes before, uh, set me off into the distance and I would, in essence, time trial along until someone caught me. And as I got older and older, uh, I got a little bit further into the race before they caught me. And, and by the time I was, uh, you know, 9, 10, 11, uh, they weren't catching me anymore. So um, maybe where I picked up my time trial uh, skills that, that came in very handy throughout my whole career. So you obviously developed quite some strengths early in your career. And like many Australian cyclists, you then started with track cycling, right? Do you remember the first day or moment you saw a track and you went on to it? Because I remember my first moment, it was intimidating, yeah. right? As a young kid to see this, the curves, the banks, like there's no way in hell I'm going up there. How was it for you? Yeah, well, uh, at that at that stage, we'd moved to uh, the largest city in in the area of, of where we we had kind of been moving around over the years, and uh, it's actually the capital of Australia, Canberra. Uh, they have a, a, a velodrome which they call the Bundadrome. Um, I, I guess it was a an old three hundred and thirty three meter cement track. <laughs> Uh, like my first one the old school exactly yep. uh exactly and uh you know really really bumpy um really uh you know very steep transitions between the banking and and uh, the straights and uh, i think just to add a little bit of spice to it uh obviously being in australia we had snakes and all the rest uh, circulating in in the center of the, of the grass field in the center um so it was it was pretty interesting growing up on that on that velodrome. Well, I did a little research and I went back and I saw that you got to race the inaugural edition of the Tour Down Under in 1999. That mm -hmm. edition was won by our good friend Stuart O'Grady, who now just happens to be the boss of that race. Was that your first kind of intro into? the European Peloton or had you gone over to Europe and kind of seen what it was all about before you did that race in 1999? I, I first started traveling to Europe when I was 16. Uh, in, so that was 1996. Uh, we, we had a, a very strong uh, development program uh, within Australia that was leading up to the Sydney Olympic Games. Uh, so a lot of government funding for uh, for athletes, and uh, we we were very lucky. We we grew up in a system where uh, the Australian National uh, Federation would would take us overseas for for various stints. Uh, at that time, I was uh, a junior under nineteen athlete. Uh, so the the Australian government uh, very generously paid for my way to, to travel to Germany. We traveled to Italy. We, we did racing in Belgium. We did racing in Holland uh, at such a young age uh, for, you know, for five or six months of the year. Uh, so, Bobby, by the time the Tour Down Under had, had, had come along in 1999, I, I, I say I wasn't a seasoned, uh, you know, racer in Europe, but I'd already done at least three seasons of and, and had exposure to, to racing in the primary, primary, uh, you know, 
nations, you know, Italy, Spain, France, Belgium, Holland, um, all around the place. It was it was quite a time, very, very lucky period to to grow up in actually. So now uh, one of your early successes were on the track, right? Commonwealth Games, for example. Now you're racing on the road. What made you change? What made you go from a promising and successful career on the track to the more risky business of becoming a road professional? It was always my dream uh, to, to be a professional road cyclist. Actually, um, my and I guess that influence came from my mother's side. My, my mother's Dutch. Uh, so she was she was born in in Holland uh, in 1948. Uh, I guess moved out to Australia with her family, um, but it came in very very handy for a young you know kids or young brothers growing up in in Australia, where we used to have our Dutch family send out all the all the VHS tapes of of all the races going on in Europe. So to Flanders, Paris Bay, obviously. Uh, Tour de France, uh, Giro Lombardia. Um, we had family there in Europe recording all these great races, sending you know a, a pack of VHS tapes out every month, uh, and and we were just excited to to receive those those tapes because those years, what was that early, you know, late eighties, uh, early nineties? At that time in Australia, we had no access to any races in Europe. We, the only access we had to professional cycling was via Cycling Weekly magazine. Um, so we were, we were, as young kids, had just all these catalogs of, of races and, and we were quite unique because uh, my brothers and I, after school, instead of going down to the shopping mall and, and hanging out with our buddies down there, we were kind of three of us were racing home. You know, to watch stage 17 of the Tour de France for the you know the 16th time, um, and and that was our childhood. We 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 grew up watching these videos, uh, practicing the day after what we saw. You know, analyzing tactics, uh, discussing you know why one particular rider made that attack at that time, and in the sprint why they did that move. So. I guess that was our that that was our childhood. It was it was uh, it was very masculine. It was it was very cycling orientated and and all about road. So, uh, Yenzi, to to answer your question, um, track was 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 uh, I guess a, a transition uh, for us to to get to road. Uh, gave us great skills. Uh, you know, taught us how to uh, be, be be very powerful riders. But it was always uh, a dream to to be on the road. Yeah, a lot of you Australian kids started on the track and then moved to the road. So <clears throat> every time I uh, consult or speak with a young rider and they ask about, hey, should I try the track racing? I'm like, absolutely. I mean, I was scared to death of the track. I think I did three laps on the velodrome up in seven, uh, at the 7-Eleven velodrome up in Colorado Springs. And I kind of pulled over to the side of the road and the coach was like, yeah, you're probably right. You need to try something else, which, yeah. which obviously <laughs> I did. But, but Mick, you mentioned that, okay, you grew up in a very, a, a very blessed time of good support. The Australian national team was very good at support, but you started your career with the MAPE. We call it the young team, right? Um, you guys had the same bikes and similar kits and went to training camps with, you know, some of the icons of the sport. 
But, um, you know, we talk a lot now about these 19, 20, 21 year old kids stepping out of either the junior ranks or the under 23 ranks and right away being on the pointy end of these races as if it's mm. something new. But this was back in the early 2000s, like 2000, 2001, when Mape had this idea. And I remember you were definitely young. You were probably 19 or 20. But Posato, uh, Filippo Posato was actually straight from the juniors back then. Um, what Indeed. was that whole experience like? And what do you think Mape did right to basically um, give you guys that experience and develop you into the riders that you became? Well, um, I, I guess anyone in, in, the, in the world of cycling uh, has heard about Mape, uh, Dr. George S. Quincy, you know, unfortunately no longer with us, uh, you know, passed just, uh, you know, uh, some, some years ago. Uh, came from a very passionate Italian family uh, with with just a huge passion for for cycling. Uh, started the Mape Company, so uh, the Mape Company is uh, is is in the building trade, uh, build, building very high quality cements, uh, glue products, uh, more or less anything that's involved with with construction in Europe. <laughs> Probably Mape has a part of that. Um, and as a consequence, I built up a, a, a team uh, in, in the late 90s, um, early 2000s, um, started a, a program uh, under the, uh, the, the guidance of the great Aldo Sassi. Um, some of you may be aware of, uh, of Aldo Sassi. Um, wanted to start a, a development team uh, to, because they already started to see uh, the future of, of teams was to really, instead of purchasing riders and and trying to replicate what they've done in other teams and try to cut and paste that into into their professional team, they started to go down the path of uh, developing their own riders, taking the time to develop young riders, pick them up very uh, in the junior ranks, uh, bring them directly into the professionals, give them exposure to 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 racing um at a lower level of course uh, but at the same time um maybe take one of the younger riders and put them up into what we now call the world tour for a few races bring them back down uh, give them exposure to to racing all around the world um so i was very lucky just to to be selected in in that program um and the caliber of the riders uh, when we look back now, uh, you, Bobby, you mentioned uh, Filippo Pozzato, uh, another quite famous name, uh, Fabian Cancellara, uh, Bernie Eisel. Um, I mean, just to, just to name a few. Uh, Laszlo Bodrogi. Bodrogi. Good time uh, trailer from Hungary. I remember exactly, I raced many Hungary. years. And, and we were from all around the world. Huh? We were from all around, from America to, to, the, to Australia, all through Europe. Uh, through Switzerland, uh, we had a, a rider from the Czech Republic. Uh, we had Italians, we had French, we had Spanish. Uh, it was just these bunch of young kids who couldn't even communicate together, <laughs> kind of all put together. And and we grew up together. We, we learned the trade. Um, 
and uh, you know many of us had had great long long careers i mean if, if you look at myself i did 16 years as a professional cyclist i think bernie eisel 18 or 20 fabian Cancellara, i mean is just in, in in his own league um I think from that that period of time that they just taught us the the, the trade of of being a professional cyclist, everything we had to do to, to look after ourselves, uh, building a network of people around us, whether it's a coach, physio, um, you know, having a mechanic this one year with us all the time. We were learning that at the age of twenty, and uh, obviously a little bit different now. But I, I think the principles of of development is still uh, was founded. Uh, very much there and uh, even the coaches I should say I should say that um, when I, I started uh, a young man called Luca Guicciolena was just a couple of years older than I was and now of course uh, manager of of, uh, of Little Trek uh, so it was just a great time you know uh, I mean we, we came from humble means I, I can still remember uh, the the first day that that we turned up to training camp, uh, I think it was year two thousand. I, I was nineteen or twenty, and 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 kind of growing up in the Australian team, used to having one bike and maybe two sets of shorts and and two jerseys to get you through the season. You know, uh, I I turned up and you know walked into my room, and you know there three or four suitcases of, of equipment. I, I, and then, you know, four or five Kamago C40s, you know, just a level that that a young kid, you know, just from Australia had never seen before. I, I can remember counting that I had, you know, I think it was 50 sets of shorts right there um, to get me through the season. Um, so it was just it was just another level. We, uh, we, we switched from overnight just from, again, being kids to put into this, this professional team that was just... A, of a caliber of, of, of maybe even very few teams reached today and budget wise as well. Yeah. And would you agree that out of that development team, more riders went on to have a good career than actually didn't make it because in these uh, modern day development teams, it feels if you make it, but the majority, maybe 60, 70 percent of the riders don't make a long and big career. But with uh, the Mapai um, sport team or under 23, it feels like that probably 60 or 70 percent of the riders made a longer career yeah. out of that, right? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really good question and, and statement. You know, I, I see how things have, have progressed over the time and, and still very have a very close, uh, you know, finger on the pulse of the sport with my work now, which of course we can get into, but at, at the UCI, um, you know, I, I definitely see a, a a different cycling now, very very focused on numbers right now, uh, whereas, uh, and, and and I'm sure you you have as much input here as I do as, as growing up in that time. I think there was there was just a, a different path of development you know, it wasn't we didn't have the science that we, we have now you know we didn't have the power meters we didn't have all the sensor technology uh, so maybe we were we were taught to i think race 
you know, whereas the result at the race was the full picture of the athlete. Um, so we were given the chance to do that. We were given more time. You know, we were, we were given two, three-year, some four-year contracts to be able to develop um, and and come up for us, learn our trade. Whereas now, um, I, I think with the just the invention of all this science, I, I think the the time for development. Uh, you know, people are a, well, it's the scientists, the coaches, or, or the management, the team. They're able to already see a lot more uh, within a very short t- term and, and be able to, you know, uh, calculate into the future um, what, uh, what may or may not happen with that rider. So I think it's just a, 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 different, a different time. And I, I'm a strong believer that over time, given obviously the right talent and, and the right, right work ethic, I think everybody can make it. Um, so I, I look up at a really, really great time and, and, uh, to grow up and, and there was, it was still a very European centralized sport. That's a very good point. And I, I agree with you, with you totally. Um, you didn't have access to these data streams. You didn't have access to the internet. You kind of, you guys kind of learned by, by doing and matured in your own, at your own speed, I guess. And yes, huge kudos to that whole MAPE organization, to the directors, to the coaches um, for, for putting that whole thing together. Because, you know, I'm not so sure, you, you mentioned you were 16 years in the, in the professional Peloton, Fabian pretty much the same, uh, Bernie a little bit more. I'm not so sure that the young riders really want to have that long of a career anymore. Like they, they come in, and they are so well-prepared, so well-educated, so dialed in, you have to question the longevity of that. And, you know, mm. we've seen over time these wonderkins come into the sport, but that was maybe every two to three years. Now, watching the TV and looking at the rosters, I'm, I'm just blown away. Basically, every team has riders under 21 that are either winning races or about ready to win races. Right. So it's, it's just mind boggling. And, you know, I don't want to talk about that for forever because it's obviously a a hot topic, but um, I I really liked that program that you came out of there, there at MAPE that was, you know, very sustainable and you're right. I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't been repeated at scale, you know, we, we do see it from time to time. And I do think there are some great coaches out there, some great directors, some great managers that are looking after these guys a little bit different, but Mm. man, when you see a 19 year old every other year now, or a couple times a year winning races at the world tour level, it, it just blows me away. It's, it's so exciting to be a fan of the sport with this youth movement coming into it. Yeah, Bobby, you're right. And and I think where we are right now also, I guess the kind of cross-pollination also between disciplines, you know, you're seeing you know, your, your road riders going in uh, to do cyclocross, uh, they're coming back in to, to do the classics and then they're doing mountain bike. This kind of cross-pollination between disciplines right now I think is really exciting. So it, it's, a, I mean, it's a, it's a great time. There's no doubt about it. And 
uh, the, some of the smarts, uh, not only amongst the riders, but amongst the coaching staff now, uh, it's just taken the, the sport in, in a completely different uh, direction to, to what we grew up in. We'll be right back after this short break. And now back to our chat with Mick. So now, guys, what do we think if we would be 30 years younger? Well, in case of uh, of, of Michael, maybe only 24 years. You're <laughs> um, <laughs> still a little younger than Bobby and me. Could we make it in these modern day and time with our talent, our work ethics? Could we make it or we would be just be fallen out of time? If we would be young one more time today, could we make it or we just not mentally wired for this modern cycling? What, what do you guys think? I don't think we'd make it. You don't think so? Oh, no. Bummer. No, no, no. I mean, when we, we keep a, a very close check on everything that's happening in the peloton, uh, um, you know, when, when you see the some of the speeds and the performances they're, they're doing now, I, I, I think they're they're just so much more dialed in uh, than than we ever were. I don't think they're tactically as smart as as some of the generations. So we might have a bit of play there. Um, but I, I think physically, I, I think they, it's just a, another generation of, of, of kind of quote unquote machine uh, we see now. And, and I don't think I would, would have made it. No. Well, I, I want to go back to 2002. Um, obviously you had a couple years under your belt. You're down there in the leader's Jersey in the tour down under, and you're, You're, you're going to win the race. And then all of a sudden you have a mechanical and you pull over to the side of the road and, you know, Jens had to do this in the Tour de France and he had to jump on a little kid's bike. I remember one time I had to basically beg a rear wheel off a spectator on the side of the road of the Tour of California. But you're on Mape with a Colnago bike and you have to pull over to the side of the road and basically your race as we're seeing it on TV is over. Suddenly some guy jumps out and goes, Hey Mick, take this. And he gives you not only a bike, but a bike with the correct pedal setup that you were riding the correct, pretty much the correct position and even a Colnago. Um, can you explain to me how that happens? And like, what are your memories from that moment? It must've gone from, absolute i'm gonna just heave this bike over into the bushes to wait a second i could still win this race and you did absolutely wow um what what a special day bobby you're right um it was 2002 um it was uh, i think the the kind of third edition of the tour down under and, and i was starting to move up in the ranks Of, of of the professionals and uh, I was I was in great shape um, I I had uh, kind of made my move um, to to drop the yellow jersey uh, Fabio Sacchi from from I think it was from from Italy and uh, managed to, to to drop him and uh, I, I was in the lead group with a couple of other riders and um, it, it turns out that 
I collided with Stuart O'Grady's father, who was a uh, motorbike marshal for the race. Um, no way. It, it, it turns out that uh, the, 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 the group had just broken on the climb and I had looked over my right shoulder to see the distance between the brake and uh, the chasing peloton. Um, and at the same time, Stuart's father, who was a motorbike marshal, turned over his left shoulder to look at the same distance and we, we collided. Um, I, my bike came to a, you know, a, a screeching halt and I, uh, the, the front wheel of the motorbike had, had knocked out the, the rear mech, uh, snapped it off and, and there I was sitting in the middle of nowhere in the virtual yellow jersey about to win, you know, uh, what was I, I think I was 20, 21 or 22 at the time, you know, really young kid at that time on the scene winning big races and uh, my race was over. And uh, I was I was very frustrated. I, I knew the opportunity I was in. I knew the opportunity that I was about to lose in the virtual jersey, uh, races going up the road uh, and I could physically be a part of it. And uh, I, 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 in frustration, I just picked up my bike and, and threw it on the ground because I, I just didn't know how to deal with my emotions. And um, like you said, Bobby, just out, out of the corner of my eye, this black Colnago C40 uh, Durace, exactly, exactly the same bike as, as I was riding, just black. Uh, same pedals, uh, same seat. Uh, the the only difference was uh, <laughs> that it had a, a flashing light on the back and a spare tube and and tie levers, little ba- you know the little bags you used to clip onto your your seat. Uh, so it just arrived out the side of my eye and and, and without even thinking, I, I grabbed it and and rode back to the front group. Um, and and uh, rejoined rejoined the front and and ended up uh, riding to to the other jersey and winning the race. So, um, quite a quite a story. And and I mean, uh, there was there was someone upstairs, uh, you know, looking down on me that day uh, to to make that happen. And um, since you're a good Australian, did you offer the gentleman a beer then later that day when we, you returned the bike to him? How did that go along? Yancy, we did we did a lot more. Uh, I, I was riding with Mappe, uh, and I, I mean, we we must have sent that uh, that guy you know three or four suitcases of you know bike kit and 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 all the you know all the goodies that that we had in Mappe. So um, I, I kept in touch with him in, in, for a couple of years and. Uh, after that race and uh, had, my, had my annual call with him and was always very thankful. Yeah, so, but that, that was a, a monumental part of my career and uh, I think really started to, to open the door and, and help me understand what I was capable of as, as, as a young cyclist and, and the opportunity to win big races. Well, to our viewers and our listeners that don't know, um, Mick was pretty darn good at time trialing. He was a silver and a bronze medalist as an under-23 in the time trial. And then you went on a tear, my friend, um, in 2003 up in Ontario. Um, you retrospectively won the world championships that year. Then you were able to repeat in 2004 and then triple up in Madrid in 2005. Um, 
you know, obviously, you know, uh, Hamilton, you know, you, you finished second to David Miller and retrospect, re retrospectively was upgraded. Um, but you won pretty easily after the Olympics, you won the world championships in Italy, um, for the second year in a row and then backed it up again in Madrid. So that's a pretty darn good run of results, right? Which one yeah. of those was most special? Um, I would say number two. Uh, we were in Badalino in Italy. Um, we, uh, well, Bobby, we had just gone fist to fist um, at the Olympic Games in Athens. Um, you finished third. Uh, yeah. I was fourth. I think uh, Hamilton won. Four seconds. Hamilton won. I was won. four seconds e ahead of you. Eki was second, and and uh, Tyler was was later disqualified as well, and we all retrospectively moved up. Um, but um, I would have to say uh, Badalino Italy because um, I I thought I was going to win. In, uh, in in Athens at the Olympics and and uh, we were all very very close together and it all came down to seconds and uh, I, I end up finishing uh, fourth and retrospectively third um, so I, I carried a, a lot of anger out of that race and and uh, was able to focus in for the world championships and and, and make uh, make up for what I thought should have been a gold medal at Athens so there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to uh, today's specialist in time trialing, like uh, Filippo Ganna, uh, do you spend enough time in, in wind tunnels and testing on the track to get your position fine-tuned? You did special intervals or you went, oh, okay, the world is in one week from now. Let's start preparing for that. Or no, was it we were, like we, months uh, for you? No, we were already becoming, uh, I think, very advanced with training already. Uh, you know, for me... The world champion once the tour de france finished i literally put my my road bike away until the until the time trial world championships later on in the year every day on the time trial bike and and uh, you know moving from a predominantly stage race kind of endurance base effort to to short uh time trial effort so um with regards to i, I guess optimization of of time trial yeah we, we were starting to play around um I was I was probably one of the I was one of the actually I was the first rider uh, with uh, together with Luca Guecciolena in two thousand and five we went to the Milan wind tunnel just down the road here where I live and uh, we we turned up at at the wind tunnel uh, the uh, I, I guess the the staff who were in charge of the wind tunnel had had no experience and and we turned up wanting to do some testing. Um, and there was no jig even to hold up the bike <laughs> in the wind tunnel. Uh, so, so Luca Guercialena and I, we, 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 we went back home and, and we designed a jig and we had it made and I, it's probably, I, I don't, maybe it's been changed now, but that, that was the jig that was used in the, in the wind tunnel at Milan for, for years. Um, so yeah, I, I guess mid 2000s, we were starting to play around with it. Uh, later on came track testing. 
uh, Uli Shuba from from SRM, uh, we you know we we were starting to to dial in, uh, but I think very differently to, to how it's done now. You know, there, there just wasn't the attention into uh, into skin suits as there is today. We we just didn't know enough yet about about those things, but uh, we we started to to learn about it uh, step by step. I hate to to jump ahead here, but I want to make sure we get it to a couple more things. Um, so from from um, Quickstep, you went to telecom for a, a couple years, and there was some obviously some transitions there with Jan leaving the team, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But that turn that team turned into H, uh, HTC Columbia or Team Columbia at the beginning, and then HTC. And, you know, looking at your development, you know, you were consistently, you know, up there, thereabouts or winning GC. But one of the things that I'd love to hear from you about was you guys were winning 80 plus races a year with you had Cavendish, you had Greipel, you had Greg Henderson, um, Chiolek, and you guys had probably the most impressive lead out train that at least I can remember. You know, yourself, George Hincapie, Mark Renshaw, I mean, Cavendish or those three or four other sprinters on the wheel. Um, amazing amount of talent. And you were one of the first guys that would go up on the front. You, George Hincapie, all these big names with the sprinters on your wheels. Um, you know, moving from, you know, tr transitioning from a GC protected guy to being one of the guys to put his hand up right away and get on the front and just dial that lead out in from, it seemed like you guys used to do it from 10 K all the time and no one could even come around you. What, what was it like winning that many races with that many different sprinters and, and just basically kicking ass and taking names all around the world? I, I think the HTC period of, of my career and, and Columbia and, and the various transitions across across the names. I mean, that was probably uh, one of of the best uh, times of, of my my career. Uh, I mean, we were uh, we were we were winning so many races. We were having fun. Uh, it just got to that stage where we it seemed that the team spirit was was so great i mean we were struggling to get our dinner down each night sitting around the dinner table laughing so much um due to jokes and and <laughs> probably a lot of that was mark cavendish uh make, making fun but we just had this amazing team spirit and uh there there was literally no one in the team was 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 afraid to you know to do the work when it when it needed to be done uh so we, we had this kind of team environment um that was uh that that played a, a very big role and and, and became just a, a snowball effect really i i think it might have been 2009 um i i, I can't remember the whether we had 28 or 29 riders but um there was one one period there where where basically everyone in the team won a, a kind of a, a UCI category race, uh, which which is very unique. You know, you don't see that very often. Um, yeah, we were clocking up, uh, you know, ninety wins per year, um, 
you know, uh, I think we went to the Giro one year and, and, and we won eight or nine stages. Um, so it, it was a, it was just a, an amazing uh, period. On a couple of fronts, I talked about the, you know, the team spirit, but just going back to, to the lead outs, I think we, we really started to, to understand the kind of so-called science of, of a lead out. And of course, lead outs have been happening, you know, for, for many years, you know, Cipollini with, with his lead out team. But I, I really felt we, we started to, to understand uh, that if we used the train effectively, so, you know, like a, a guy like myself or, 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 or you know, George or, or some of us bigger guys, if, if we were kind of hitting out at five kilometers from the finish at 60 kilometers an hour, you know, on the front, then uh, we had four or five guys behind us. Uh, we, we started to realize that for the riders in the washing machine, I mean, if, if, if they're going to come up and sit beside us, then just to make up the room, they probably need to ride at 65 kilometers an hour. And uh, we were very confident that, that not many people could do that. Uh, so we, we started to understand that the force of aerodynamics, uh, you know, how difficult it was, again, if we were riding at those higher speeds, just to come up and sit beside us uh, and, and challenge the train, you know, was a, was a very energy intense effort. And, and if you didn't have a team around you to be able to do that, uh, the chance that you were able to ride next to Mark Cavendish or, or Andre Greifel, um, or, or whoever, the amount of accelerations that you would have to do prior to the, even the sprint starting, uh, was a, was a tough feat. And, and so we found a lot of confidence in that, uh, um, I guess now they're a lot more advanced than that, um, but but that was that was our thinking at the time. Hey, um, Mike, before we come to talk a little bit about what you're doing nowadays, mm -hmm. you had such a great career. Like if I look at it, you know, GC and Tour Bavaria, world champion, GC Tour of Germany, Belgium, Route de Sud, Tour Down Under. The end of your wonderful career came a little surprising with these um, heart problems you had. Well, mm -hmm. first of all, is this all good for you now? You're yeah, at 100% healthy. And yeah. how difficult or how easy or how quickly uh, could you adapt to your new life after cycling? Because in your mind, I think you wanted to do one or two more years. How difficult yeah. or how easy was it for you? Um, I guess just to give the, the context to that, Jens, um, I, I was born with a uh, the aortic valve or malformation of the a aortic valve, and um, I, I picked up uh, actually in in my first couple of years of, of professional cycling during a, a routine kind of annual check and and heart examination that was required to attain your license. Uh, so they picked up on this mal malformation malformation valve and. Uh, For those of you who know how the aortic valve works, it, it, it opens and closes in, in kind of three, uh, three single parts. So if you think of a, a Mercedes-Benz logo, there's the three kind of uh, parts of the star. 
so three three uh, shutters kind of opening and closing. Mine would open in two and open and close in two, which uh, uh, would cause an imperfect seal in between beats and uh, a small amount of blood would, would kind of go back through the valve and back into the heart, the heart chamber. Um, and it was, it was never really problematic uh, through, through my younger years. I, I would need, my heart would have a irregular beat every so often to clear the, uh, the blood that was returning up the valve. Um, so my, my heart would beat uh, irregularly every so often to, to clear that, that blood out of the chamber and put it back into uh, the ordinary flow. As I got older in my career, um, the, the amount of these irregular beats were, were, were becoming so constant uh, that uh, the doctors just said, listen, uh, make the decision now uh, why you can <laughs> to stop uh, that that was the advice that was given me so but that was a that was after after 16 years of racing so but the great thing is now is is after you know so many years of of, of returning back to to normal activity uh, the heart being a muscle you know slowly uh, compacts back down and and all those irregular irregularities have have, have disappeared so I can still exercise, you know, at a, I'm not really into doing efforts and that stuff anymore, but I still love to go out and ride my bike. <laughs> yeah, it was February 4th, 2016, I believe. Um, so great to hear that everything's going well. Um, obviously, things are going well. Uh, tell us a little bit more now about your responsibilities at the UCI. You are head of, uni head of in innovations, big word. Um, head of innovation for the UCI. We know that the UCI gets a bad rap from time to time. Um, tell us a little bit about your primary duties there and how you think things are going. Yeah, so I, I look after all uh, and responsible for uh, everything with regards to bike regulations, uh, clothing, um, so all the kind of really technical technical parts you know whether it's time trial handlebars and uh, and uh, inclined brake levers, which is a very uh, very popular one right now. Uh, so that that all comes under under my responsibility. So uh, maintaining the regulations, updating them when they need to, uh, working with our, our technical commissaires. We also do uh, the UCI has uh, about three uh, equipment approval procedures. Uh, so, um, for those of you who don't know, we, we all the frame sets that are that are being used in in UCI sanctioned races, they come by uh, come by uh, our office and and we we ensure that uh, all the frames adhere to you know the re relevant ISO norms, to safety. Uh, same for for wheel sets. Uh, we, we maintain. Uh, uh, a, a strict process of ensuring that uh, wheels are, are made correctly and tested properly. Uh, so that that's quite that that all comes under my office. Um, also, uh, prototype equipment. Uh, so so the UCI has some regulations around what type of equipment can be used in in particular races and, and what can't. Uh, so that that all comes under un, under my office um, and. My uh, another another 
topic that I, that I follow is is cycling esports. So the organization of uh, of the world championships uh, in the virtual world every year. So uh, that's uh, th- that's my role at UCI. Alrighty then. So now, in theory, if mm. I would be a representative of the bike industry and I would come, Mr. Rogers, can we please lower the minimum weight of a UCI bike to 6.3 kilograms, like 500 grams? What would the answer be, yes or no, and, and, and why? Because surely with all the carbon parts we have now, we can make a bike safe and lighter. But there must be a reason, a good reason for it. No, we just keep it where it is. Well, you know, um, that, that's a good question. And, I mean, we, we weigh thousands of bikes uh, every year. Um, so we, we, we see the weights. Uh, you know, we've been particularly in the mountain stages. Our commissaires, uh, you know, check the bikes and, and weigh the bikes. To be honest, it's with the addition of disc brakes, tubeless, um, uh, it's very, very rare uh, that, that we see a bike uh, near 6.8. Uh, now, that's, that's within the men. You know, we, we see some of the, the small climbers, uh, bikes approaching, approaching 6.8. Uh, medium guys, they're all about the, you know, the, the 7, 7.1s. The taller guys get to, you know, 7.3, 7.4s. Um, now, for the, for the ladies... Uh, we, we do start to see uh, some some bikes that need to have weight uh, weight added to that. Um, the the discussion, I think, about decreasing bike weight, I, I, I do believe I do believe there there is uh, you know safety uh, very safe bikes I should say can be built uh, at, at a lower uh, lower weight. So that is a discussion that, that probably needs to happen uh, for the UCI. The safety elements uh, is, is, is the priority and, and a lot of the manufacturers well. Uh, nobody wants to see a, a bike breaking uh, and, and, and the riders uh, sitting, on, sitting on the ground. So, um, but I, I think there's a lot of expertise out there in the brands. I mean, we have very close relationships with with the industry as well and and we're very in contact uh, with them uh, on on what is the right thing to do with regards to uh, to to the bike weight and and that's currently six at 6.8 nick you you were considered and are considered you know one of the the smartest guys in the peloton you were always looking at these advantages that you can gain and now as head of innovation What product or products do you wish you would have had back in the 2004 Olympics that you could have made up those extra seconds and, and, um, you know, been faster? You got some pretty interesting stuff has to come across your desk, but what do you think makes the most difference these days? Um, I would always say, say position, you know, like we, we see a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of marketing material out there that that this bike or, or this piece of equipment uh, is more than more aerodynamic than 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 part Y. You know, um, 
and and I'm sure that's the case when when you sit a, a piece of equipment in the wind tunnel uh, and and you spray air over the bike or the piece of equipment, you, you can get uh, you know a, a very clear understanding of what is the most aerodynamic piece of equipment. But when you take that bike and you put an athlete on top of it, everything changes. Everything changes. So instead of talking about one kind of piece of equipment or, or even with regards to weight, um, I definitely see it as, as, a, as a broader package of how the, uh, the, the equipment fits with the rider. Because, you know, if we look at the athlete, you know, probably 80% of the drag that the bike and the athlete produces is coming from the position of the rider. Um, so what, what we thought was a, a very fast seat post <laughs> when a rider sits on the bike, obviously the, 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 the air is going up around the, the rider's shoulders and head. Um, I would say probably the biggest uh, uh, changes uh, is, is with skin suits right now. Um, you know, a, a very good fitting skin suit um and some some very smart use of of materials and uh surface roughness uh we, we see massive just massive gains in 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 uh, the performance of, of skin suits uh we we often see that uh for the very dialed in riders uh it is the skin suit uh that probably has the the biggest effect uh and probably should determine which helmet you should use um so uh, you know back in in our days we, you know a lot of thought went into helmets whereas now uh it is the skin suit that probably defines which helmet you should use whether it should be a longer one or a wider one or, or a small one so um the, the effect that skin suits has has, has probably been the biggest uh, change in in the last couple of years with regards to aerodynamics Actually, interesting that you say that, Michael. Um, I had a chance to uh, go to training camp of Team Bora Hans Grohe and uh, watch a little bit of uh, Rockledge training, his new bike and position. And there, uh, some of his uh, coaches or experts um, told me, actually, we cannot just ride along at 25 miles and test a skin suit. The race happens at 60 kilometers an hour. Mm. So if you want to have a proper testing, you got a ride in training 50 to 60 kilometers an hour to have a real life uh, um, experience because materials exactly. yeah. behave quite differently if it's 30 kilometers an hour or 60. So yeah, you're right. They said the same thing. The skin suit is in a moment, the thing where everybody is uh, watching to, uh, to improve. And um, it's probably, probably the, year, the area where the UCI currently uh, regulates the least. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, you can still do a lot with skin suits. We, we do have regulations about surface roughness, um, but it's very individual, very individual. What works for, for, for one rider uh, may not work for, for another. So you know, there's a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of resource, resources get put into, into that now. Yeah. Um, do you sometimes have these eye-rolling moments when riders like, stop shaving their calves on the sides to have like this little line where the airflow then cuts off and uh, creates a smooth airflow after the unshaved part of the leg or the tape that the Danish team was it they had tape on front of the bikes 
you sometimes just roll your eyes and go, what the heck did you think? Or you go, oh, wow, that's pretty smart, actually. Well, I mean, the, the, you know, being in, in, in charge of regulations, it's always difficult to, to write a, a regulation because uh, there's, of course, always open to, to certain interpretations. And uh, I remember last year when we made huge changes to uh, time trial regulations, uh, we introduced uh, height categories and each of the height categories uh, were allowed to have uh, you know larger uh, dimensions and when you kind of first put out the regulation and and you know everyone sees it and then you start to see the effect and you you kind of hope that you didn't leave a loophole open uh, that 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 someone will 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 exploit and and be able to get a, a you know an unfair advantage so um there's always two sides to the coin. I always say when writing a regulation, you know, we, we do our best to 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 make it fair for everybody, uh, but there's always, you know, not just one, but within professional road cycling and, and truck cycling, you know, th there's always many that are, are much smarter than than I am and and, and my team. Uh, that that's how we see things, and uh, so we 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 try to get as much input on regulations and, and see people coming at from from different perspectives before we kind of put it out into the wild, let's say it that way. Well, Mick, we've taken up enough of your time. It's been a great conversation. Great seeing you again. Great catching up with you. Great hearing some of these stories. So thank you so much for coming on Bobby and Jens today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Jens. Huge thanks to Mick for being our guest. Thanks for listening and please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo production in association with Shock Giraffe. This episode was produced and edited by Mark Payne. Please remember to check out the video version of this podcast by heading to the Outside Watch YouTube channel. Get in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. Just head to at Bobby and Jens and give us a follow.